Today, we're starting a brand new series called Jesus Is, but before I get into what that's all about, I want to share two things that I love about being one of the preachers at North Cross. The first thing I love is that I've got this guy right here. I don't, I don't know if I should call him Alfred or Robin, but either way, I would not be Batman without him. I like having a preaching TV, and it's uh, nice to have Mr. Maybe Insignia. We'll call, him, we'll call him Sig. We'll call him Sig for short. So it's nice having a preaching TV, but the, the main thing I really love about being a preacher at North Cross is more about the people. That's where you guys say, aww. There it is. What I, what I appreciate and understand about our audience is that for those who attend per, uh, services in person, and especially for those who kind of tune in online, we have a wide, a wide diversity of people who are part of our church family and who are part of our weekly services. Uh, on the one end of the spectrum, there are some of you, some of us, who would say that we've been Christians our entire life, pretty much without skipping a beat. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are some of us who maybe are just entering this faith journey. We're, we're seeking answers about who God is, and maybe we're in the phase of addressing some of the doubts that we have. But regardless of who you are and what your background is, in this series, we're going to challenge all of you with the same question. And it's a question that you might be tempted to give a quick Bible answer to, or Maybe there's uh, something from your, if you went through confirmation or catechism classes, maybe there's a quick, you know, just response answer that you'll give for this. But the, the answer that we're going to ask of you this series is one that I hope you reflect on internally and what it means for you. The question is, well, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? And one of the fun exercises is that if you're part of a growth group this week, or if you even just want to have this conversation with someone in your house, how would you answer that with one, one word? Who is Jesus? Jesus is, what word would you pick today? Throughout this series, what I hope you can do is continue to, to grow your depth and understanding and really who Jesus is. And uh, for, for one thing, this is a difficult thing to answer because how you answer that question today might be different than how you answered it a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. Not because Jesus has changed, but because your understanding of him and your circumstances in life have forced you into a different, deeper view of who he is. And also, as we grow throughout life, so does our understanding of who Jesus is. So this is a difficult question to answer just from the pure facts behind it. But what I pray is that in this series you can have a deeper answer for what this is all about. And w w there isn't like an extended introduction for this series because really we don't need one. All we're going to do for the next five weeks is really look at who Jesus is. But if you need a reason to listen, if you're looking for the introduction, here it is. I believe that regardless of what you believe about Jesus, whatever you believe about him is the most important thing about you. How you answer this question shapes how you view your life purpose, and it shapes how you view your identity. Who is Jesus? The answer to that question shapes how you deal with evil in the world, and it also shapes your motivation for doing good. Who is Jesus to you? That shapes so much of how you process emotions and how you realign yourself in daily life. 
how, who is Jesus? The, the answer to that, that question shapes the value you place in other people, and it also determines the value of the person in the mirror. Who Jesus is to you is the most important thing about you. And I believe that's true if you're a lifelong Christian or someone who doesn't even know Jesus yet. Whatever you know about him and whatever you think about him is the most important thing about you. That's what some might say, that's my opinion, but that's my strong belief. Nothing else in your life will shape you more than what you believe and what you think about him. So in the next five weeks, we're going to challenge you to think about different things when it comes to Jesus. The challenge is, sometimes when we talk about someone, like if I was going to you know, tell you about one of, my, one of my friends from high school that you've never met, I'd probably say like, well, they're kind of like this, or they're, they're kind of like Ben. You know? we, we try to compare things between people to share who they are. But with Jesus, we can't really do that. We can't say Jesus is kind of like this person. He's kind of like that person. We might say he's kind of like a friend. He's kind of like a coach. But in reality, Jesus is like nothing else and like nobody else. So all we can say is, Jesus is. And today, what we're going to look at is the fact that Jesus is our substitute. Now, usually when it comes to messages, I like to tease you until the very end and then drop the big idea on you. But here it is. Here's the big idea. You could tune out right now and you'd have the takeaway for the message. We're going to talk about how Jesus is our substitute, but we're not going to talk about what that really means until the very end. What I want to start with is the tension that surrounds the alternative. Jesus is your substitute. He's, he's the person who stands in your place. He, he takes your place in a way. And we'll talk about what that means. But the alternative to Jesus being your substitute is, is something that's a lot more common. And in fact, something that's also true of him. If you were to survey anyone who knows anything about Jesus, whether they're Christian or not, and you were to ask them, who is Jesus? I, I think a, a majority of the answers would say Jesus is a good person, he's a good teacher, he's prob- maybe even a prophet from God. He was, he was noble, he was good, he was well-behaved. Um, the, the, the common theme around all those things is that most people would say Jesus is a good example for us. He's, he's our example of what to do with people that are difficult. He's an example of how to use our words in a good way. He's an example of how to live. And that's true. In fact, that was the foundation for part one of our last series. We talked about how Jesus actually told people, hey, if you listen to me and put into practice my example, you will have a firm foundation for life. People, uh, Jesus promised people that. But what we want to show you today is that you can't necessarily have both of these things. If Jesus is primarily an example for you, you will be missing the main reason why he did what he did. And maybe to bring out the tension I feel from this sometimes is, uh, um, let me put it this way. There's a few students I know that occasionally come to me for help. I'm trying to stop talking about my kids so much, so I'm just talking about them without talking about them. So there are a few students who come to me for homework help every once in a while. And they'll come up to me and say, Pastor Matt, would you help me with homework? And usually I have two questions I ask. I ask them, what's the problem and how do you find the answer? And usually they, these students figure it out for themselves. But there was one day when one student came up to me and they said, can you help me with this? I asked, what's the problem and where's the solution? 
And the student was frustrated. They said, I have to read this entire article and then find the answers and fill them in. So I said sarcastically to the student, I said, do you want me to read the entire article for you and then answer the questions for you? And then the student kind of said, yes. And, you know, if I was that person's parent, here's my attention. If if I were their parent, which maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. Um, But the thing I come back to as a parent so often is uh, really boiled down into six words. There's so much of parenting where you wish you could step in and do things for your kids. But most of parenting is figuring out how best to demonstrate these six words. I can't do this for you. I can show you how. I can show you an example, but I can't do this for you. I can't do your homework for you. And I think a lot of parenting is finally getting to the point where, you know, they turn 18, 19, 20. Ultimately, you stop doing things for them, and they are their own person. They're their own adult. And I think we apply this to all sorts of different relationships in life, but unfortunately, we carry this into our spiritual relationship too. We think maybe God has that opinion of us. He gave us a free will after all. Don't don't we have to figure this life out for ourselves? Didn't Jesus just come to say, here's how to do it. I can't do your life for you, but here's a good example. Like, wasn't that the main reason? The answer is no. There are so many good examples we see Jesus give to us, but that was a secondary mission objective for him. The primary mission directive was for him to become our substitute. And to understand the the beauty of those two things, how he is both our substitute and our example, I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 4 today. And in reality, there's so many different texts from Jesus' life that we could have looked at to see how he's an example, but more than that, a substitute for us. But in Matthew chapter 4, this is the, the first moment we see Jesus really stepping onto the scene in a public way. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was baptized. And in a very public way, a voice came from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Normally, when sinners entered into the Jordan River to be baptized, there would be a declaration that their sins are forgiven. Now their life has changed. It's different. But when Jesus entered the water, there was no forgiveness to be offered. Rather, God said, this is my son whom I love. There's nothing wrong with him. There's nothing to forgive. I'm well pleased with him. And from that moment on, people began to recognize Jesus as much more than a carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus, through his words and actions and miracles, demonstrated he was the son of God. And for a long time, people saw him as an example of what to do. But right away in his story, he demonstrated that it was so much more than that. So in Matthew 4, we see Jesus' baptism, and we see that uh, Jesus is stepping out into the wilderness for the very first time to... to, um, to start his public role. And Matthew chapter four details the first thing Jesus did. Jesus, after his baptism, was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was what any of us would be, hungry. He was led by the spirit. There was intention. There was, um, this is something on purpose. He was led into the wilderness, which don't just view it as a desert place. Don't view the climate. Don't think about the the vegetation. The word wilderness highlights isolation. 
It's not about vegetation, it's about isolation. The wilderness was where Jesus would be completely alone. And the purpose was that he would be tempted by the devil. And there's a reason for this. This is a rematch, so to speak. Uh, there was the first match, the first time that there was a great temptation. It, it was in the Garden of Eden, not in a wilderness, but in the perfect climate, the perfect place where two perfect people had everything that they could want for a perfect life. Adam and Eve had the ideal situation around them. They had each other. They had food. They had all of their needs taken care of. And then the devil came to tempt them, and they failed. Jesus is the counterpart to this. He's entering into the wilderness in isolation. Um, One of the things that struck me this week uh, from something I I heard is that when it comes to being in community like what Adam and Eve had or like what you and I have as, as members of a church, one of the blessings of community is that we have the opportunity to confess our temptations before they become sins. We confess temptations before we have to confess our sins. It's a great way for us to share in encouragement with each other. Adam and Eve had that. Jesus was entering into the barren wilderness in isolation, all on his own, so that he could evoke a rematch, a long-awaited rematch with the devil himself. And in what follows next, we see a remarkable example of how to handle temptations when they come to me and to you. First, we're going to see this as an example, but then I want to show you the beauty and the depth that comes when we see it as, just, as, as more than just an example. So three temptations specifically that we see the devil going to bring to Jesus, but what we know from Matthew and what we know from Luke, who also recorded this, is that really throughout these 40 days, there were continual temptations, numerous ones. We don't know how many, we don't know what they looked like, but we do know three of them. Here's the first one. The tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, you know, that voice from heaven said that you're God's son, but if you really are that, prove it. Tell these stones to become bread. You might think, well, what's the big deal about this? This can't be that big of a temptation. But when you think about Jesus' miracles and signs, and John called them signs for a reason, they were signs for people to see who he was. If Jesus were to use some miraculous power to make life simpler, he would be bypassing the human part of humanity and just living the lush life here on earth. If I were him, I would have invented a microwave. You know, that would make life a lot simpler. Invent a refrigerator. They didn't have those back then. There were so many things he could have done and just miraculously made happen that would have made his life easier, but he would not have been like us. And as you look at the temptation, this one and then the two that follow, there's a common theme that picks up that's also true of you and me. Temptations bring questions. Temptations are a form of negotiation where you're trying to determine who you are and what your purpose is. And that's exactly what the devil tries here. If you really are the son of God, if you really are this, then, well, what's your purpose? Who are you? What are you going to do? And every temptation with us does the same thing. Every temptation in one way or another calls into question your identity and your purpose. In some way, every temptation does that. Well, if you really did work so hard this week 
don't you think you deserve a little bit extra? If you really are this person, well, don't you think you can just do this? We can justify in our minds either what we do or who we are with any temptation that we might have. As you think about personal temptations, each one of them calls into question who you are. Are you really a child of God? No, I think that's the other people in the room. You're not that. You can do whatever you want. Or to Adam and Eve, did God really tell you the full truth? Do you really think that he loves you? Do you really think that he sees you as someone he trusts? No. So take this fruit and you'll have something that God doesn't want you to have. Every temptation calls into question your identity and your purpose. It starts this negotiation of sorts. And as we see Jesus respond to all three of these temptations, there's a common theme that we're going to see that, again, sets an amazing example for us. And it's something that I don't want to miss from this text. To to the temptation, the first one, Jesus answered this way. It is written. He's quoting the Old Testament scriptures. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, In other words, the devil said, your priority in this moment is feeding your body. And Jesus said, no, it is written that my priority is not earthly in nature or bodily in nature. My priority is my heavenly father and his love and approval for me. It was a priority issue for Jesus. And so he quotes scripture that negates the question that the devil asked. Every temptation will call into question your identity and your purpose, but Jesus responds with scripture to realign towards the truth. Uh, The second temptation is somewhat similar. The devil took him to the holy city, which we know as Jerusalem, and had him sit on the highest point of the temple. If, same question, if you are the son of God, if this is really who you are, maybe appealing to his pride, or appealing to his you know, manly sense of, I, I am who I am, then he said this, if you are the son of God, then why don't you go ahead, next slide, and throw yourself down? Just take a leap. Because it is written, the devil is quoting scripture, which I think is the creepiest thing, but it's important to know that your enemy knows the Bible better than you do. He's distorting a promise that God had made. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Devil was distorting this promise that was in a different context to a different people and it's a different point. The point was nothing could stop God's plan of sending a savior. But as Jesus responds to this, he could have paused for a moment there and said, man, you got a good point. If I really am the Savior, if I am the Son of God, I must be bulletproof, right? I could do anything I wanted. But Jesus recognized that he was a vulnerable human being, just like any of us. And so Jesus responded like this. It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He didn't have to explain why the devil was wrong. He just replied with truth. A third question, a third temptation comes up. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Um, The point was, uh, the devil was showing him, hey, you know how God so loved the world? He wants the world to be his? Well, I'm going to give you the world right now. Just 
let's just bypass everything that's about to happen. I'll give you a shortcut to everything you need. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Just one small concession. One little thing. And we don't have to go to the cross. I'll just give it all to you right now. And as tempting as that must have been, Jesus replied with this. Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Every temptation calls into question your identity and your purpose. It's almost like there's a negotiation taking place where you think about the offer, you think about who you are, you think about what you do, what your purpose is, and you kind of negotiate internally as far as what's going on. But there's two things I know about negotiations. Number one, never negotiate with a terrorist, also known as a toddler. Learn that lesson. Uh, the second thing about ter- about <laughs> terrorists. The second thing about negotiation. We'll have a parenting series eventually. We'll talk more about terrorists. The um, the second thing I know about negotiation is that the longer you are in a negotiation, the the more likely it is you are to lose. Easy example for all of us. Nine o'clock at night. The the longer you think about that ice cream in the fridge, the long the, the more the chances are that you will eventually just open the. the the freezer and, and grab it. Like the longer you think about it, the, the, the more likely you are to fail. But the same is true of spiritual temptations also. The longer you allow the question to roll around in your mind, the longer you're going through those negotiations where you say, I know I shouldn't, but you know what? I kind of deserve it. The longer you allow that to go, the more likely you are to fail and to fall into that temptation. And what Jesus demonstrates through his example is so, so applicable for us today. All three times that we see him being tempted, he doesn't have to negotiate. He doesn't have to spend time in it. He has an immediate response from what his God had already declared, from what his father had already declared. And here's the takeaway for us. God's declarations end the negotiations. What God declares ends the question of who I am. What God declares ends the question of my purpose and what I do. There is no temptation where you need to dwell on it. When you simply let God's declarations speak into it, it ends the question immediately. I know I'm a child of God. I know that to which I am called. I know my purpose. This temptation has no place away from me. Whether you view temptation as a spiritual attack from the devil or just something that comes from your own sinful heart, end the negotiation through God's declaration. And this was so amazing. As, as Matthew's recording this, and you also look, uh, Luke also recorded this in Jesus' life about the, the temptations. This is an extreme example for us of what it means to see Jesus as one who's not like anyone else. He was able to resist temptation in the most vulnerable, isolated place imaginable, physically weakened, uh, community-wise, relationally isolated. And he's battling an enemy threefold what Adam and Eve had to face in the most perfect of conditions. And it's to the point where Matthew could have ended the story right here. And Luke could have ended the story right there. And they both could have wrapped up with a simple verse that went something like this. 
And that's how you do it. Or, and in this way, Jesus showed his disciples how they were to battle temptation. Jesus gave an amazing example. But Matthew continues with one interesting verse that seems harmless at first, but it really sets the stage for why Jesus came. And it was so much more than to just be an example. So after these temptations, the devil left him and he wasn't done. Angels came to him and took him into heaven? No. Angels came to him and attended him. I don't know what that means. Maybe it was an emotional encouragement, a physical nourishment. We're not sure what it is, but what we do know is that God wanted Jesus to be attended to so that he could continue in what he had started. The purpose of his time on earth was not just to be an example for us, but it was to be a substitute for us. When Adam and Eve failed their temptation in the garden, that changed everything for you and for me. But when Jesus, when Jesus overcame his temptation in the wilderness, likewise, that changed everything for you and for me. Now, I'm going to illustrate this. Maybe this will strike home for for some of you, maybe not. But the illustration is that uh, a few weeks ago, long story short, I can make this like a 10-minute story, but I'm not. For, For several years, I've been planting jalapeno seeds, which mysteriously entered my garden by, by accident. Um, long story short. Anyway, this, this year, as I harvested the seeds from last season, I, I harvested them in four different ways. Um, dried some of them out, just put some of them in Ziploc bags, rolled some of them up in paper towels, set some of them aside in a dif- different way. I, I could have Googled this, but I'm, I'm a guy. I'm like, I'm just going to do this four different ways and figure out what works best. And so anyway, I took seeds in four different ways and I planted all of them. I got one of those trays from Fleet Farm where you can plant a whole bunch of seeds. And so there's four rows here. Each row was a different way of, that I prepared the seed. All the soil was the same. All the watering was the same, but... If you can't see the picture, one out of four made it. It was just a couple days ago that I started to see these things sprout. The entire top row is all working fine. The other three, nothing. Now, of course, I'm a smart person, so I never wrote down which bag was which. (laughs) So I'm going to have to repeat this next year. But as I thought about this, I'm like, man, that top row is like the best example of what to do. So maybe I can just encourage these other three rows. Be like number one. Maybe I can show them this is how to grow. But no amount of encouragement is going to change these guys. The problem is with what's inside. The problem is not the soil. It's not the water. It's the seed inside of it. There has to be a change that happens in order for something to happen. And that's why Jesus came. He didn't show us how to become alive. He didn't give us an example of what it means to look good to God. He came to change inside of us that which was dead so that we might have something that is alive. I love how the Apostle Paul put it in the first century. He wrote this letter to the Romans and he put it this way. He said, consequently, just as one trespass made us all dead spiritually, made us all barren, all seedless, all without fruit, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, looking at Jesus' life as one righteous act, resulted in justification for all people. Justification and life. 
And to close, I just want to look at that word justification. It simply means to be declared not guilty. You know what every temptation is designed to do? Every temptation the devil sends your way is designed to make you question who you are. You're not a child of God. You've failed too many times. I know what's on your record. I know what you did last night. I know why you are the way you are. I know all of your brokenness. You are disqualified from ever being loved by God. But the gift of God is that he did not show us the pathway to be right. He provided a substitute who was right for me and for you. When you see Jesus as your substitute, it changes in your heart. It doesn't give you an example of how to become better. It gives you the declaration that you are declared righteous in God's sight because of what Jesus did. So I'll put it this way. An example shows you how to do it. A substitute changes who does it. And when you see Jesus as your substitute, it changes the life in your heart. It gives you life within you. And then on top of that, you also have a good example for what it looks like to thrive in this life and to be strong in your heart and to be resilient in your mind. Jesus is an example. He gives us so many examples throughout scripture. We could have looked at any number of texts where he gives us an example of how to live and how to pattern our life, but he is so much more than that. At the heart of it, he is your substitute. So as you think about that truth this week, how Jesus is your substitute, I don't have a specific application. Usually there's homework. Usually there's an assignment. Maybe in your, uh, your assignment this week is simply to think through the temptation that's most common for you, a temptation that seems to come up. And would you think to yourself, well, what is this tempting me to think about myself? How is this questioning my identity and my purpose? And then rather than going into this alone where you feel the warfare between you and this temptation and you feel the guilt because you've fallen into it so many times in the past, rather than going in it alone, would you envision Jesus conquering this temptation for you so that even if the devil were to stand before you and lay before you his accusations, you might say to him, that doesn't matter. I am dead. My life is hidden with Christ. And what he has done, he did for me. I am declared innocent in God's sight because Jesus is so much more than my example. He was my substitute. And that changes everything. So this is a foundational approach to who Jesus is. And I pray that this impacts the way you view yourself, the way you view people, the way that you encounter evil in the world and the motivation you have for doing good. And I hope you can join us again next week. We're going to look at what it means that Jesus is the friend of sinners in a way that is so much more than a feeling he had toward them. It was more about an action that he did for them. But for today, let's, let's close with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, as we look at the story and the account of your son, there's so much wisdom there as far as how to align ourselves and what to do and how to view the world and how to view ourselves. There's so many good examples that we see from Jesus' life. 
But I pray that as we begin this series, we start with a, a firm foundation that he's so much more than an example. His purpose was to enter into this world in our place, to do battle against an enemy that we could not win against, and to defeat it. So that now we get to stand before you as your loved children. Our battle is done. The fight is over. Jesus is our substitute. Let that truth permeate our hearts this week as we think about the temptations we face. May we face them with wisdom. May we face them together with other people. May we have the courage you want. But more than anything, let us face temptation with the victory that Jesus has already given us over them. I pray that in his saving name. Amen.